Hello, welcome to Tea Hangs for the Memories. I'm your host, Darren, and today we're going to be talking about the Green Mile, which is, we're getting close to the end here of the Golden 14. We're at number 11. Um, it was released in America on the 10th of December, 1999, uh, as was the practice early in the, 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 the millennium. Uh, it came out over here slightly later. Um, I saw it on the 7th of March at 8 o'clock in the year 2000. It cost me £3, um, and I saw it with a couple of friends, and... Uh, one of their dads came and gave us a lift home because the film was three hours long. We did not realise this, and it finished way after the last bus. Um, I think it was close to midnight before, by the time we actually got out of the cinema. So, um, yeah, so thank you very much, Mr Dickinson, for giving us a lift, and also RIP, Mr Dickinson. Uh, he died a few years ago. He was a very nice man. Um, this film did very well. It got, you know, 4.7 times its box office, uh, you know, from the budget, so that's pretty good. Uh, it got 78% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I do not understand. I don't understand that number. The audience score makes more sense, which is 94%. Uh, it's got an 8.6 on IMDb. Tom did not win the Best Actor Oscar that year. It went to Kevin Spacey for uh, American Beauty, although he did win the Blockbuster Award. Um, he's getting the biggest of top billing. It, the, the, there's nobody else on the poster but Tom Hanks's name and Tom Hanks's face, and it is all about Tom Hanks. Uh, joining me to talk about this today, I have Niall McGowan. Hello, Niall. Oh, hey, Darren. And I have Robin Burge. Hello, Robin. Hi. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, I obviously I remember when I saw this film the first time because it was in the cinema, and uh, I think in the year 2000 I saw 48 films at the cinema that year, um, or it might have been 52. No, it was 52. Um, one, one a week. It wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't seeing them one a week, but it was, you know, worked out to one a week. Um, yeah, that was a good year. 2000 was a good year for film. I mean, you know. I don't think people can deny that. Obviously, some of those were holdovers from 1999, like this. Yeah, one. there's always um, that weird thing we see, like, oh, the best films of the 90s. And then you see, like, Fight Club and The Matrix pop up. And you're like, what? <laughs> and like, no, no, they, it feels like they're 2000, but they were technically 1999. <laughs> I saw Fight Club 17th of November 1999. So mm. it's like it was 1999 that... over here. Yeah, well, it's just um, on the tip, though. It's like, ah, like, oh, the year's yeah. done. It's just, just pack it in already. <laughs> Here is a funny thing. I saw four films on the final day of, uh, not final day, like I think it was the 30th of December, 1999. Uh, the final one of which was Dogma. And when I came out of Dogma, I had the chance to see Fight Club a second time because it was showing like about five minutes after I came out. But I was exhausted because I'd just seen four films of the cinema in a single day. <laughs> so I didn't see it a second time and I kind of regret that because I wish I'd have seen Fight Club in the, in the cinema a second time knowing the twist. Mm. Um, but I can like viscerally remember seeing it in the cinema and feeling that twist like as it happened. I was like, what the hell is going on? Um, yeah, so... Uh, but yeah, it is weird when yeah stuff that from nineteen ninety nine came out over here. Like um, this happens with like Toy Story two, uh, which obviously I think I'm covering uh, next or no a couple of a couple of episodes ago. I can't remember now mm. in terms of the running order of this thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that ca that came out like in two thousand over here, but it came out in America in nineteen ninety nine. So it was like there was like again a few months gaps. Mm. Um, but yeah, so Niall, when did you see this for the first time? Oh, I, I just. Uh, I have very distinct memories of seeing this for the first time because uh, I think I would have been 13 when this came out and it was picked up by my parents as like their weekend, like Saturday night video rental. And uh, the th okay. reason I, I so distinctly remember it is because uh, like I kind of wandered in. I was just like, oh yeah, but you know, heard about this, heard it's supposed to be good. Sat down and, and my dad is very sensitive to violence in films. And so, you know, the okay. first like hour and a half, you're doing fine. And then the execution of Edouard Delacroix comes up mm. and he yeah. freaked out when that scene happened. He was stormed <laughs> out of the room and he was like, turn that off, turn it off right now. He was outraged that this was in the film. And like he came back in, he's like, no, nah, you can't watch this anymore. Get out of here. And even my mom was going like, what's well, over now? The guy's dead. So I don't think it's going to get any worse than that and stuff. But you do that memory of my dad flipping out. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think he, people will be know, executed. From the, I think from the 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 execution of the chief earlier on, you're like, oh, okay, that must be as bad as yeah. it gets. But then to see like you know, guy's head literally erupting into flames and stuff. And since then, like I just sort of remember it mostly because that and Casino. My dad also did that with the um, Joe Pesci putting the guy's head in the vice and stuff. Uh, so now they're marked more as not being great films, which they both are. Uh, but just my dad's visceral reaction to both of them. And to this day, I would never mention the Green Mile 
near my dad. He probably doesn't remember that that even happened. Wow. <laughs> but it was such a, vo- a volatile eruption of a, a reaction. I was like, oh, Christ, I don't want to have to bring up that memory again. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that, like, during the scene after um, Paul is cured, um, where, like, you know, there's like, a, you know, it happens like, I don't know, three times do they do it? Four. Mm. Like, I thought that would have been the scene where, because yeah. that's more like, that's more like what I would expect a parent to be worried about is their kids being exposed to that rather than the I think I think my dad, he, he, I think he, he, I remember in the 90s, he had a really bad kidney stone that he had to go to the hospital for. I think he had a real okay. kinship with Paul Edgecombe in the early stages of this movie. <laughs> I think maybe that's why he was so sucked into it. He was just like, I get this movie. This is like my own life. And then to see something then so horrible happening, it's like, I can't even take it. It's just too much. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the fact that he says before they flash back, I worked on death row. <laughs> Your dad wasn't clued in. Okay. Uh, Robin, you remember the first time you saw it? Was it as memorable as that? <laughs> no, unfortunately it wasn't. I definitely saw it in the theater. I saw it in uh, December of 1999 <laughs> um, before the grid collapsed. Uh, and, you know, we lost all technology and everything. Um, oh, Yeah. <laughs> But luckily, it all came back. Uh, it took like one second, right? You think of why 2K had actually happened. All the great films the UK would have missed out on <laughs> because, like, oh, all the Americans got seen it last year. But then the millennium happened, and now we're just eating dirt because we've got nothing else to do. <laughs> uh, I was excited to see this movie for sure. Uh, I um, it's so funny that you mentioned Tom Hanks being on the poster because, yeah, I I am actually you know a Stephen King fan. Um, I've read a lot of his books. Oh, okay. Um, and I read this one as a serialized novel. Very excited to read a new, you know, mini Stephen King book like once a month. So I was super excited. But then it's so funny, the the publicity for this movie, the poster, it's just Tom Hanks. And to me, I, w- I remember being kind of like, really? <laughs> That's what you're going to do with this monumental like story? It's just like, it's Tom Hanks. Go see it. <laughs> Yeah, double double Oscar winner Tom Hanks. He'd won two. He'd won two Oscars. <laughs> He'd been nominated another couple of times. You, you, like you, uh, you know, Forrest Gump, second highest grossing film in 1994. What else do you need on a poster but Tom Hanks? Because maybe it's um, just they might have figured it was a tough sell. Because it is yeah. like here's a three hour death row drama from Stephen King. It's not a horror though. It's one of the other ones. But at least it's got Tom Hanks in it, so that'll get you sucked in. <laughs> There's no way to kind of there's no way to kind of say what John Coffey is on the poster without completely giving away the entire film. You know, yeah, like the, yeah. the film and the book both save that up. You know, for like the halfway point before you find out what John Coffey is. Mm. Um, which spoiler alert, JC. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> could put the uh, like a subtle He's... little you know halo over his head, like there was in the uh, during the last uh, days yeah. of his life there. Uh, the during the film scene when he, they're, they're watching Top Hat, um, or something, you know, something just a little hint. Yeah, his hands glow a little bit. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you've also got you've also got to remember that like Saving Private Ryan came out like a, a like almost exactly a year before. So Tom Hanks was riding extremely high at this point. Like the Toy Story, Toy Story Two was coming out. Like. You know, it, it, like any, anything that you wanted to sell, you just put Tom Hanks' name on the poster. <laughs> and even more than in the 80s, like there's some films in the 80s where they, you know, they obviously got Tom Hanks because they knew it would make money. And, you know, in this in this case, it's like it's Tom Hanks. And obviously, you know, recently in December, they're obviously going for Oscar season. Um, yeah. You know, like you, you just need Tom Hanks and the words for your consideration above it. You, know, you don't really need much more else. That's what the film was. Yeah, obviously this was released as a serialized novel. Uh, Robin, you're a fan of Stephen King. I'm not a fan of Stephen King's writing yes. in particular. I mean, I've tried a few times to read some of his books and I'm just like, eh, I'm really not. Yeah, like, And also, I am not, and this is, I mean, considering the amount of horror films I've seen in the cinema, <laughs> this is going to sound weird. I'm not a fan of horror. I'm not like... When people are all like, uh, you know, this magical demon is killing people, I'm like, eh. Like, that's not that's not a thing that exists in real life. It doesn't scare me in, in the slightest. Uh, I say this as somebody who saw Candyman literally last night in the cinema. Oh, I, I saw, I I saw Candyman last night in the cinema. Well, <laughs> There we go, yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm, I, it's like some horror films like entertain me. And there are some horror films where I've like seen, you know, I've seen all the Final Destinations. Um, or Finals Destination, should I say. I've seen all of the Saws, you know, like... 
you know, there are, uh, bizarrely enough, I think I've ended in the last decade. I've ended up seeing the remake of pretty much every, almost every single horror franchise, um, and I, I just like, you know, and maybe it's because I saw that there's a there's a thing on Family Guy where they're like, you know. Uh, Stephen King is like in the publisher's office, and they're like, "What are you writing about now, Stephen?" He goes, "Um, like looking around the room." And he goes, "Oh, this lamp, this lamp, it's it's haunted," and they go, "You've done it again, Stephen." <laughs> and and it's like that's just what it feels like sometimes. Is you know, which is not he's not a bad writer. He's just not somebody that you know I particularly enjoy uh, reading. So I'm so glad I think you're, to you're, you're, you're. I'm so glad uh, to be on this <laughs> podcast then because uh, I love Stephen King. I love horror, <laughs> and I don't consider Family Guy a great uh, critic. <laughs> To source, mm. <laughs> didn't they say the Godfather like, insists upon itself? <laughs> I mean, it's just a cutaway gag, but you yeah, know, no. um, <laughs> yeah, I like you know. So I mean, but saying that, I I bought I bought the novel like as it was coming out. Uh, I was at university, I was on trains a lot, so I was you know I had like a four hour train ride to get to to and from my university mm. from my home. Uh, my aim of going to university was to get away from my family, and I succeeded, quite frankly. <laughs> um, but it just meant these long train rides. I'd always end up buying stuff to read, and you know, I think at the time I'd read pretty much every single magazine. Like there was nothing left, so I was like, you know, I saw like the standee with like this this kind of like you know, uh, you know, short you know novel thing, and I thought, okay, this looks interesting. Um, you know, I read like the back of it where it said, you know, a novel in six parts or whatever, and it was going to be a serial novel. And I'd studied English literature, you know, I was aware of like Charles Dickens doing that kind of thing. So I was like, okay, well, you know, we'll give it a try. We'll see, uh, see if it interests me. And, you know, uh, I think maybe because of the way that Stephen King was writing this, he was kind of forced to be a bit more succinct and to the point. And so the novel, you know, as it came out, each each part was extremely, I mean, I say succinct, but then, like, a character walks in and you get, like, six pages of backstory about, like, Bill Dodge, and I'm like, uh, I'm, like, you know, in the film we get Toot Toot, and there's, like, 25 pages about Toot Toot, and I'm like... Uh, it, it, so you're saying not more Toot Toot? Because I'm taking more Toot Toot when I see this movie. <laughs> well, I mean, I like, I like Harry Dean Stanton, yeah. but I think that character is in, like... If you've never read the novel, that character makes no sense on screen. Like he turns up, he he like there's no introduction to him. He just does the whole kind of routine of like I'm a dum-dum turkey. And then he turns up like half an hour later and he does it again and you're like who is this guy? Like what? <laughs> That's you true. know, you guess he's a prisoner, but the, yeah. you know, they just they don't even call him Toot Toot. They just call him Toot on screen. So you know, but I I think because of the way that the the novel came out, Stephen King was kind of forced to tighten things up a little bit and just make it a bit more concise and you know the story is like a you know it's a good one you know and and you know it kind of pulled me in and obviously I, by the time it got to the sixth part i remember being very like impatient as to when it was coming out <laughs> and kind of like just you know like every day like you know checking w H. smith being like is this out yet you know like and being really annoyed that part five was still on sale um you know because they changed the display every month they made a big deal out of this thing over here it was you mm. know i remember it being quite prominent um so yes, you know, uh, you know, I'm obviously you said you read it, um, Niall. I, I'm, I mean, I'm guessing that you're 13. You probably weren't buying. Um, actually, you would have been younger when the novel came out because it came out in '96. So you yeah, probably wouldn't have been yeah. buying Although, Stephen King we'll say, serial novels. Even at that point in my life, uh, I am a big Stephen King fan as well. Uh, so I think you're you're uh, you're outnumbered on this one, Darren. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this one. Actually, I, I'm, in I'm pro- the editor now. I can cut all this out. <laughs> but obviously, in the uh, you know, as a child of the '90s, I grew up in the era of the Stephen King miniseries, where like mm. you know, Tommy Knockers is going to be on yes. this week, and like, oh, it's a big event for Channel Four. <laughs> but um, so, uh, but yeah, and so every year, I to this day, I still read like two or three Stephen King books a year, making my way through the whole back catalog. But The Green Mile was one I hadn't read up until a new was coming on this show. And I have to say, I was actually quite upset that I hadn't read it previously because I really love when I'm reading books to, like, um, you know, create your own version of the world and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, it's much easier to do when you haven't seen a film previously. Something like The Shining, actually, because Kubrick's version is so different from Stephen King. You can imagine, like, oh, I could, I could recast Jack Torrance in my head, no problem, because they're so separate. But the thing is, the Green Mile I discovered upon reading it is that even though I've not seen this film in about a decade prior to reading the book, it's so incredibly accurate to the text and it's so <laughs> amazingly cast. Mm-hmm. Everything's just like, I can't imagine it any differently. So it was kind of a bit of a, 
not, not, not a, it kind of dulled the experience a little bit to me because you just you're constantly imagining, you know, Doug, Doug Hitchinson as Percy. You can't not picture him. Mm. You can't not picture yeah. Michael Clark Duncan. It's just like this is the man born to play this part. Like there's no one else who could have done it but him. And like yeah, trying to get you know Tom Hanks hacked away from the character of Paul Hedgecomb is virtually impossible. <laughs> so I kind of I wish I had read it in serialized form when it released because then I might have had. A, a decent crack at getting my own interpretation of the text before Frank Darabont just kind of went, this is it. This is exactly what it should be. Yeah. And uh, virtually impossible to think of it any other way now. It's funny because when I, re- when I reread it, which I do, you know, every couple of years, the images I had the first time I read, like the layout of the mile and stuff like that, they're not anything like in the film. So, you know, when they describe where the restraint room is and all that kind of stuff, it's completely different in my head. So I, I don't even really picture the film. I just end up remembering what I I thought it was the first time, um, you know, when I read it. So I guess I've got that advantage. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, saying that I've seen I, like all the recent Stephen King adaptations. I've seen them all at the cinema. So, yeah. you know, was it true, my money? Was it this? This was the most up until the release of it. Like, it's part one. I think this was the most yeah. financially successful Stephen King movie when it came out, it was, right? Yeah. Like, hmm. Maybe that was the power of Tom Hanks. Like, he, he just edged him over, like, into the stratosphere. Yeah. Which is it's kind of a weird one to consider, though, considering how massive a guy Stephen King was. Like, was in the 90s and is again now. Like, the, yeah, the Green Mile to be the one that, like, that's the one that's, like, wiped the floor with yeah, all the rest of them. Truthfully, Niall, most films adapted from Stephen King novels are complete garbage. <laughs> and it's like it's not even just like a meme, but like they just are like, you know, the fact that he took his name off Lawnmower Man. You're like, yeah, because it's garbage <laughs> because, you know, you end up with like, you know, Children of the Corn Part 7 or whatever. Or, you know, like <laughs> yeah. just garbage. Like, like, like something like Misery. Keep... So one of the prestige ones might well, have been yeah, like... Well, this is it. Like, Misery, 1990. This, 2000. Everything in between, garbage. <laughs> Throw it all out. There's nothing worth seeing. Um, although some people would include The Shawshank Redemption in, in, the, yeah. in the middle of that. But, I guarantee you, maybe the Dan, Shaw- if they had released Langoliers the to cinemas, it would have blown everybody out of the water. <laughs> they re- I mean, you know, they like they had like Thinner, and I, there was just so many like just garbage Stephen King films where it's like... You know, I understand. Like, I understand that he does this thing where he gives the rights away for a dollar or whatever. But like, seriously, Stephen, maybe stop doing that. <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe stop letting people make terrible adaptations of your films. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. there's something about him because I know he himself, I believe, has described himself as like the the Big Mac of you know literature, basically. <laughs> I think that's my. I find that the almost the appeal of him. I find something. I've never been scared of a Stephen King work. I find his books and his writing style very comforting. So every time you crack open a new one, it's kind of like, oh, I know this guy. I know how he works. I know. And so I, I don't think that's I think that's why I don't mind when it's like, you know, here's a random minor character. Here's 30 pages of setup. And hey, guess what? They're going to die in the next page anyway. Right. So what was the point of it? Like, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, immerse me in this world. Like, I'm, I'm happy to be back in Derry, Maine or whatever. Like, I think that's kind of half the appeal. It's like he, he draws his characters out so well that, you know. I think that's yeah. kind of the what what wins me over to him, really. I mean, also this this novel not set in Derry, Maine, like one of the rare occasions. Um, and when he talked in the press, like he was like he did imagine Paul Edgecombe to be Tom Hanks in the book, so mm. it makes sense that they they cast it like that. Yeah, um, and obviously, interestingly, this is the only time that Tom Hanks has worked with Frank Darabont. So, uh, yeah, I believe he he I, was at, he was offered Andy Dufresne. In Shawshank, and he turned it down to make Forrest Gump. Right. And I think that was yeah, almost kind of like to make it up to Frank Tarabon's like, okay, I'll star in your other one then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to kind of make a list of what's different from the film to the to the book because obviously the book is fairly you know it's fairly similar there's two like there's kind of two big things that are in the book that are missing from the film the first of which is brad dolan which is at the nursing home um you know where we kind of join it in the present um you know there's a guy who's there who is who reminds him of percy and throughout the the novelization brad dolan keeps coming back and all the time percy is like he reminds me of you know um he reminds me of Percy Whitmore, this Brad Dolan guy does. And it's like, you know, okay. I mean, I can see why Frank Darabont cut it out because it's like, 
you know, within the film, he's only going to have the present day and then he's going to flash back and he's not going to come back until the end. So there's no point kind of um, having one of the orderlies just be extremely mean and, I don't know, possibly played by the same actor to make the point and then kind of flashing back because it just ends up being a bit confusing as to exactly who that person is. And another thing is there's like there's one less execution, I think, in the film than in the book. Um, and there's like one less prisoner that's on the mile um, who kind of exits the book pretty early on. I'm guessing if Stephen King had been writing it all in one go, he probably wouldn't have even bothered putting that character in the book because he does nothing. He just appears and then get, doesn't get executed and then lives his life and gets murdered, I don't know, in the prison or something. Like, it's, it's just a character that doesn't appear, basically. Um, and then also there's there's kind of the concept of the floaters, which, you know, ha- means that, like, within the book, the Green Mile, they have, like, the, the core kind of wardens who were on there, but then they also ha- constantly have other floaters who were on there who generally end up kind of causing a bit of trouble because they're not as experienced as the guys who exclusively work on the mile. Um, and they just dropped that from the film completely. You know, they stuck to the, the core characters. And there's even, I think, one of the main characters who's in the book, I can't remember which one it is now, who's basically just dropped from the film. Um, and they, they kind of just give most of his stuff to, like, uh, Dean and Harry instead of having, like, an extra character. Um, I think they switched around so, you know, uh, the ages of, uh, I think it was Harry and uh, Dean. Like, Dean was supposed to be the older one. Mm. Harry, the younger. And obviously, you know, in the film, we've got uh, Jeffrey DeMunn playing the completely incompetent Harry Terwilliger in the film. <laughs> like, that guy is like a disaster. Everything is involved. In, I mean, it's kind of the same in the novel, but normally it's him and a couple of floaters that kind of mess things up. But in the film, he's he's just a waste of space. <laughs> like, I like Jeffrey DeMunn in this role because his face is permanently like just... Yeah, the reaction shots <laughs> are good <for> Everything. <laughs> He's, yeah, he's constantly puzzled by everything that's happening, despite the fact he's meant to be like a veteran. There must be a yes. point like, in the Blu-rays or somewhere, though, uh, they have to concede the point of like, there's a character in it called Harry Tewilliger, there's another guard called Dean Stanton, and all of a sudden in the film, Harry Dean Stanton appears. Like there must have been at some point in production, they're like, you know who we should get? Because we keep seeing this name floating across in two parts. The production desk every goddamn day. Why don't we get Harry Dean Stanton then? I would like to think they'd see those names and go, why don't we get um, Kelsey Grammer? Uh, (laughs) But they don't. Uh, Yeah, so I mean, that you know, that's kind of, yeah, like, you know, obviously Barry Pepper is playing Dean Stanton. Yeah, in the novel, he he feels like the older one and Harry feels like the younger one. Um, Barry Pepper obviously also worked with um, Tom Hanks in uh, Saving Private Ryan. So, you know, uh, a quick return. Um, and we will also get, I think, the conclusion of the Gary Sinise trilogy with this uh, with this particular film, mm. uh, having been in Apollo thirteen and Forrest Gump. Um, yeah, and obviously Michael Michael Clark Duncan is tall, but he's not that tall. <laughs> and I think he he's actually shorter than James Cromwell, and right. he's shorter than David Morse. But in the film, you know, in the novel, he's described as being, you know, very, very tall and very big and, you know, gigantic. And so obviously in the film, they use a lot of little kind of tricks to make him appear taller um, than everybody, particularly when he gets to like the uh, warden's house. But obviously we can discuss that when we get to that. Um, I would like to imagine as well that Rita Wilson got the first copy of, uh, you know, the part one of The Green Mile. And uh, much like uh, Liv Tyler and... Um, Ethan Embry in that thing you do she just grabbed it straight away at the bookshop and ran all the way home to uh, Tom Hanks working in his shed on some typewriters <laughs> and like banged on it and then opened it to a page and said Tom you get to piss in this film and it's part of the plot and he was like I gotta be in this film um, because you know obviously Tom Hanks is a fan of for some reason just pissing in films he just likes doing it um, you know. I was I mean, wondering if you had a tally going at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I mean, I think at this point it's just the money pit and uh, obviously a league of their own. He like literally enters right. like half an hour into the film and like his first main scene is just him peeing for like 90 <laughs> seconds. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is I think this is the only one where it's actually part of the plot, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is this. Let's jump into the film. Yeah. We start um, with a flashback uh, to some people in a field. We'll obviously find out what that is uh, very shortly. And in the present day, we see Paul, um, uh, who is a resident of, you know, some kind of old person's home. 
And, um, you know, when he, he walks past someone and they say Paul, and then he walks past, you know, he gets to the orderly, and the orderly calls him Mr. Edgecombe. So within the space of three minutes, we've managed to get his full name. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's just, I thought that was masterful. I forgot that that's happened. I was like, oh, yeah, they, they basically give both his names, but, you know, in such a, a kind of careful way. Mm. Um, something that carries over from the novel is they're watching Jerry Springer, although I believe in the novel um, Paul was more angered at, like, Oprah for some reason, which... Um, I don't know, white guy in the south <laughs> feels like maybe you should direct your anger somewhere else, but uh, yeah, so we also have a change of lo- location because this is set in Louisiana but in the novel it's in a different state which yeah. I've completely forgotten uh, Georgia, I believe Yeah, yeah. So, and I think somebody even said like when comparing the book to the film they said it makes sense for the bit to be a place called Cold Mountain in like Georgia, but not in Louisiana <laughs> so uh, but they just stay stuck with the name Cold, Cold Mountain Penitentiary. Um, you know, uh, one of the guys uh, protests that they're watching Jerry Springer. All the women are like, it's fun. And he's like, they just talk about fucking each other. <laughs> so that would be me. I'd be so irritated remote. being in my old age and having to watch <laughs> that nonsense. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, so he takes control and he goes through a few channels. We get a few little kind of um, clips before we eventually land on Top Hat. And um, people singing, I'm in heaven. And of course, uh, that ends up sending Paul Edgecombe crying out of the room because he, you know, it reminds him of something from his past. Yeah. Um, I think that also another slight change is that I think the book's set in 32. They changed it, the flashback, obviously. Uh, they changed it to 35 because that's when Top Hat came out. So they're like, oh, yeah. otherwise we're going to have those IMDb assholes in the future <laughs> going like, well, I think you'll find the Top Hat didn't come out until 1935. It's funny because in the final part of the novelization, Steve King, uh, Steve King, what the hell am I doing here? Novelization in the final part of the in the final part of the novel that came out, Stephen King said that he ha- he actually spotted some errors in the previous five parts, and he you know when it goes to like a paperback, he'll correct some of those errors. Um, so you know he was his own um, you know IMDb trivia. Mm-hmm. Um, I got I'm briefly excited case. there though when I thought there was a novelization of the movie, and I was like, is it like when they made the <laughs> The streets, the the spin-off game of Street Fighter the movie. <laughs> yeah, it would be amazing if somebody went through and did novelizations of Stephen King films. That would just be oh, there's also so, a, a, such a board a... game coming out based on the Queen's Gambit. So uh, look for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be funny. No, it's uh, true. Yeah. So now, <laughs> sorry. It, no, it'd be, and it will be funny when it comes out. Um, and the yeah, so. Uh, in the book, he's writing his memoirs and he gives them to his lady friend, Elaine, for her to read. And obviously her reading the memoirs is the flashbacks in the novel rather than um, mm. the, the, the kind of him sitting her down for like five hours and basically telling her the entire story of the film, The Green Mile. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he, t- he says to her, you know, I used to work on uh, Death Row. Um, at Cold Mountain Penitentiary, uh, we called it the Green Mile, and you know he, he was reminded of John Coffey. Um, and then at eleven minutes and eleven seconds, uh, we reach Tom Hanks, and he is peeing. He starts the film peeing because obviously that is clearly the thing that attracted to him. He has a urinary tract infection, which he told Elaine as well in the in the in the kind of in the future. He's like, I had a urinary tract infection, and it was the worst that he'd ever had. And, um, you know, in the book and also in the film, he describes it as pissing razor blades, which yeah, is, just you know, horrible. Uh, I, I have to say, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm a little older myself and uh, I actually not didn't have a urinary tract infection, but I had like some prostate issues uh, for a while. And I would constantly be thinking about this movie whenever there was like, you know, some effort <laughs> that needed to be made <laughs> to uh, go, go regularly. <laughs> Uh, I would constantly be thinking of uh, Tom Hanks, uh, well, later on in the movie, on his knees in his backyard. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of reason uh, why I try to stay so hydrated is both seeing this yes. film and also my dad's kidney stone and just like instill that kind of like just constantly be drinking water, man. You don't want to you don't want to <laughs> yeah. mess around down there. Make sure everything's in yeah, perfect I mean, working order. Yeah. Even if you keep drinking water, you'll still end up with a kidney stone because the minerals are what gathers and forms one. So you'd have to make sure you're taking all the minerals out of your water now to. Oh not my get a god! Stone. I shouldn't. Yeah. I'm, I'm even more worried because my uh, my brother who's in his mid forties. He also got one that like hospitalized him last year. So it's like, is it a, hered- a hereditary thing? Like, what am I not coming <laughs> in the future? 
I don't think it is. Um, we get to the mile and um, we are seeing uh, John Coffey being brought to the mile and we get to meet the various guards that are there, um, including Paul's right-hand man, played by David Morse. Uh, probably my favourite in this entire film is Brutal. Oh, so uh, great. Brutus Hell. He was my favourite in the novel as well. Yeah, I mean, David Morse is just... Like, the idea of, like, a gentle giant is... Per- like, obviously, John Coffey's a gentler, gianter person. Um, but, like, David Morse is just perfect as his, his like, right-hand man. Like, you know, he, he kind of instinctively knows what Paul wants. And, you know, he's also the most competent of all the guards that are there. <laughs> the rest of them, you know, they're trying their best. Um, you know, also on there, we have Barry Pepper as Dean Stanton. We have Jeffrey DeMunn as Harry Terwilliger. Um, and we also have Doug Hutchinson, who in real life is a complete terrible mm-hmm. person, as mm-hmm. Percy Wetmore, who is also a terrible person. And the problem with this performance is Doug Hutchinson is very good at getting you to hate him as Percy. <laughs> and He's typecast. So unfortunately, you have to... Yeah, well, you have to kind of praise this performance because it is a really good performance of somebody that you end up hating. Yeah. Um, like instantly, like straight away. Like mm. as, soon as, you, as soon as you get the whole dead man walking thing with, with John Coffey... Like, you instantly hate him. And, you know, for the rest of the film, you know, he is obviously the kind of antagonist, um, you know, towards all the other guards. Um, He's there because um, someone in his family is, you know, in government, um, you know. And this is, obviously, we're kind of in the middle of, you know, the the depression. So it's obviously people, you know, if you've got a job, you kind of try to keep it and you don't want to be ruffling feathers by, um, you know, kind of doing something to Percy. And obviously, you know, once John Coffey is put into his cell, and we're at, it's emphasised exactly how tall John Coffey is as he walks past everybody and his shoulders yes. are, like, above their heads. Um, you know, we, we, like, Percy keeps with his whole dead man walking thing. And, you know, t- you know Paul knows what the, what the what, you know, what the Green Mile is about and what this, this, you know, this E-block is meant to be. And, you know, obviously he doesn't, he doesn't really want Percy there at all, but he sends him off the block um, at this particular point. Uh, which, of course, leads to the warden, uh, played by James Cromwell, a man who himself is extremely tall, mm. um, you know, kind of telling him off and saying, you know, you, ca- you can't you can't kind of do that to Percy because he's got, you know, he's got people in power who will, um, you know, who will kind of uh, get you in trouble or get you fired. And, you know, there's obviously that threat hanging over. And then, But there's also talk of the fact that he may transfer to a place called Briar Ridge, which is the uh, local insane asylum, where he will be paid better. So, you know, uh, Paul is holding out hope that that will happen. And between them, the warden and, and Paul, they figure out that maybe the one thing he wants is to, you know, um, kind of lead an execution. And that's that's why he's there. Because obviously he's a an insane, sick individual. Right. Yeah. So that is the thing. It's all doing a good job, though, him. setting up, like, uh, the amount of little Chekhov's guns there, though. Just like, you know, he wants to... Oh, yeah. He wants to be up front for, uh, you know, an electrocution. He's also talking about this mental asylum. So keep in mind that he's going to this Briar Ridge place because it might pop up again later and be quite important to his ultimate fate. And it also, it's it's so yeah. interesting that... I, I didn't think about this till the end of the movie, uh, uh, that all this time you're just like, oh, I can't... I, I, I would feel so much happier for these characters if Percy was went off and got that other job. And then towards the end of the uh, movie, you, you see that other place and then you go, oh, wait, he would be an, a, a, a complete psychopath there, too. So it's kind of good what happens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, he would be 100 percent victimizing yeah. people even more vulnerable because they're not in any kind of right mindset as well. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, he'd be it would just be allowing the monster to grow with, with that yeah um but yeah there's a little bit of like from james cromwell we do get a little bit of like the idea that there's something not completely right with him you know he's you know obviously he's emphasizing this stuff about percy but also in in his performance that you know you can see there's a little bit of something there that something is wrong with him and obviously we'll find out what that is later i think there's one um, thing with the uh, with the, the, the casting of the doug hitchinson because i think he was like 39 when he played the part but in the book yeah. percy's supposed to be like a kid He's yeah. supposed to be like nineteen twenty, and it's kind of like oh, so he's just like sniveling the little you know upstart. Whereas it, knowing that he's a fully grown adult in, in the movie makes him even more hateful because it's like he should know better by now. Thirty nine, you should be you should be like a, like a a functioning person at this stage. But he's like no, he's still sort of hanging on to you know the goodwill of his relatives and stuff. And you know no, obviously doesn't have any friends because he's such an asshole. 
I mean, I think uh, there's no way that Doug Hutchinson looks 39 in the film because obviously they've very much darkened his hair. And, you know, considering that all the actors around him are mostly older than him, I think Barry Pepper was one who's probably younger than him. Um, it just makes him look even more younger. And obviously the way that he acts is very juvenile as well. So, um, you know, while in the novel, obviously he was meant to be extremely young. I think maybe what happens at the end would seem a bit more cruel if it was done to a teenager. Whereas, <laughs> you know, in, in the film... It kind of if he's like someone who you were kind of put in at maybe mid twenties, then you know it kind of makes it kind of makes a bit more sense, um, you know, in terms of the ages of the film. But like I said, Doug Hutchinson in this a great performance, a terrible person. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's also just the, yeah. the character too of uh, Percy Wetmore just filling a classic Stephen King niche of like yeah the bully boy around. He always has relentless bully characters and is you know henry bowers and stuff and mm. it there's always like beyond the supernatural they'll just be the human evil as well and the key seems to be kind of the predominant antagonist in this whereas usually there will be a a bigger supernatural big bad but you know you have like randall flag but then lloyd's his right hand man beneath him that kind of thing uh but yeah so he's just very much if you're you know uh, a dedicated reader of stephen king you're like yep this is uh take that one off because <laughs> you know you're gonna get a few more. Even if you even if you're even if you're not a dedicated reader of Stephen King, you know that for some reason every one of his books has got a bully in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, and yeah, we also get like uh, here the other like running character that is on the, in the in the book and in the film, and that is Mister Jingles, um, a mouse who appears on the mile, and you know no one kind of figures out where he comes from, and they, and you know later on he'll kind of keep vanishing. And I don't know if there's meant to be like a magical element to him, just that, you know, maybe this prison isn't completely like airtight and there are little holes that people can't see. Um, but uh, yeah, Mr. Jingles like ends up kind of like it's weird because in the book, like I think Stephen King introduced him without really knowing where it was going. Um, and it kind of feels like, you know, he had an idea that they see a mouse um, and then the next day the other guards see a mouse and and, you know, like. That they kind of you know uh, brutal like feeds him and they're like don't feed him he'll just come back <laughs> and, it's, and I I even like as well how Dean is like you'll have like we'll be overrun with mice but the thing is it's like the thing that's unusual about um, uh, Mr Jingles is no one's ever seen a mice on the like a mouse on the miles so they're not going to be overrun with mice because they've never like how would they get in like they've never seen them before like this is that's what makes this quite funny is like how he's worried about the fact they'll be overrun with mice and it's like but th this is unusual that a mouse is here mm. um and so yeah i mean uh, well i mean i do enjoy like the kind of how mr jingles is almost used as like a kind of a bargaining chip between the different prisoners and how and and the guards and like you know his presence on the mile is obviously a contrast to the fact that basically all of these people are going to be killed by electrocutions <laughs> so um in in contrast to that we have this this kind of mouse um and you know obviously uh, brutal is the first one who feeds him gives him a bit of a biscuit um and then the next day you know like he kind of get, goes into the restraint room um and they take everything out and they can't see where he's gone um and then the next day um when he reappears it's with um is it harry and uh bill dodge i think there's, there's like two di it's two different guards basically and harry feeds um, him right? and i know Percy that and yeah harry uh, harry's harry's feeding him to kind of get him to come closer and when he's doing that that's when percy decides to strike and try and kill mr jingles and of course he once again runs off to the end of the mile into the restraint room uh setting up the i, I love that this is like this feels like it's kind of like um you know, just like a side story, but it's actually setting up this restraint room, which will become an important part later on in the film. Um, but the fact that they have to kind of empty it all out. Um, and I like that nobody else wants to help Percy and he's just emptying the whole room out by himself. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's it kind of shows that, like, if Paul's on the mile and he's like, you know, come on, guys, let's empty out this restraint room to chase down a mouse, then everyone does it. But if it's Percy, it's like, no, nah, you can do that yourself. And... Uh, you know, they just leave him to kind of work up a sweat doing that. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, yeah, I, 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 I like the kind of the introduction of Mr. Jingles as well, because it's kind of it's almost exactly how it is in the novel, where like the, he appears one night and then he appears the next day to different gods. Although I think in the novel, it's mostly um, Harry and like a bunch of floaters like it's not it's not like the named gods. Um, and obviously, this also sets up the fact that um, Percy is going to keep trying to kill that mouse when he sees the mouse. <laughs> <And> so. <laughs> 
you know. Uh, I mean, you know, in most of the films, this would be like a kind of a minor subplot that isn't really important. But Mr. Jingles is there to establish a lot of different things throughout the rest of this film. Mm. Um, and I think it's a CGI mouse as well. There might be like a couple of real mice in there. But, it, you know, for a lot of the shots where it's running and stuff, uh, obviously it's it's CGI. Later on, you know, it become, it definitely is a CGI tale that is in John Coffey's hands. Mm. Um but yeah, so I mean, I think they did really well because you know you kind of see his personality and you know everything that's in the book where they where they talk about Mister Jingles, they kind of very much like Stephen King really builds Mister Jingles up as like you know the world's smartest mouse, um, and I think in the film they kind of get that across, and also the affection that the gods have, you know, not only to the mouse but the fact that they're you know that Paul is willing to kind of indulge them in a little bit of you know like just kind of you know to keep things kind of calm on the mile you know just be like here's a mouse they're not going to get like upset about it they're just going to like feed it a bit of food and see where it goes and you know I just thought it's 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 uh you know it's really well kind of established and it uh mm. it causes one of the first big um disagreements between Paul and Percy like Percy tearing the place apart screaming and yelling and we have this discussion between Paul and Percy about yelling, you know, while there's people under strain and treat the place like an ICU. And uh, Percy's reaction to that, a bucket of piss to drown rats in. That's what this place is. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is when we meet Harry Dean Stanton, RIP, as Toot Toot. In the novel, it's explained that Toot Toot is a prisoner who sells stuff to people basically hmm. he has like a cart that he pushes around and he sells various goods to people he sells you know uh, uh treats and stuff like that and you know stuff that they need um you know later on a cigar box obviously takes you know a particular important role um in the film he's just harry dean stanton and he turns up <laughs> and he he is the one that they use to run through the executions before they carry them out for real and just to obviously make sure that everything is kind of timed. And what I think is really funny is a lot of the dialogue that Harry Dean Stanton is saying here is word for word from the novel. Mm. Like his entire character is literally on the page and they he just basically says everything that's in the, you know, the whole kind of getting right with God, getting right with God, getting right with God, like all that kind of stuff. Like all the, you know, all the kind of the, the, the kind of the fun stuff that he's saying as he's kind of going through the routine of practicing the executions, um, you know, which it, it, you get the impression he's been doing it for like literally decades <laughs> because, you know, he kind of knows it off by heart. Um, you know, it's just a it's just a wonderful performance. But as I said, if you haven't read the book, it's a bit kind of puzzling as to who this person is. Um, and they do kind of refer to him as Toot. And you're like, who who is this? Per like, you know, I could imagine that people who haven't read the novel will be very confused as to what's happening when this character walks in. Mm. Uh, but I guess you just kind of take that it's a, you know, it's a prisoner that they use for rehearsals. Um, at the same time, I would say, why do they need to rehearse? murdering people they've done this a ton of times before like you know no. this is not their first time i guess it's just like uh, the, like any muscle you just need to keep it trained make sure that you know if you if you start letting it go people people will start slipping and stuff and because it's such a you can see what happens when it goes wrong so it's like make sure you get it right every time yeah i i, I appreciated the again the, like paul talking to percy about uh why we keep things quiet paul is all about procedure and in order to you know, keep things, uh, you know, this is not like a joking around so, uh, uh, time. This is this is a time where everything has to go right. It's the end of somebody's life. So, uh, you know, they cannot screw it up. <laughs> that was the thing, yeah. thing that's quite interesting just in Paul's attitude towards things as well, because uh, it, it doesn't delve into it as much in the film. It does, you know, to a certain extent, but because... The book does give you so much more backstory to all the characters yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. The fact that Paul is very accepting of, like, people show up here and you, you treat them with respect. Like, Edouard Delacroix in the book is, like, he's a rapist, he's a murderer, he's an arsonist. He is everything, like, he's, a, you know, an appalling character, you know, outside of the prison. Yet when he's in the walls, I think even Paul in the text says, like, oh, whatever evil was inside him is long gone now. And now he's just, you know, he's just a guy and... We, I'm, I'm treating him with respect. He treats me with respect, and we try to make you know everything as painless for everyone around us as possible. So it's, yeah, I, always, yeah. I find that quite an interesting aspect to like that's just his attitude of like it doesn't matter what you did in the outside. Now we're all in here together. Let's try to be as civil to each other as we possibly can. It's in here because Stephen King wants to explain how executions work, and he wants to set up Chekhov's gun, and so. <laughs> 
Chekhov's sponge, should I say, in this case. Mm. Uh, and so obviously we need to see, you know, we need to see an execution go right so that we can see one go wrong. Yeah. Um, and then we can see one that takes everybody's souls at the end. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is obviously setting up the rule of three. You, you just need something so people understand the procedure so they'll know when something goes wrong the second time. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's clearly the reason. But also, yeah, it does it does feel like something that obviously they would rehearse over and over just to make sure that everybody gets uh, the sequence of events ex- exactly correct. Because obviously, if something is done incorrectly, then it will go wrong. And Paul doesn't want that. And, you know, he's you know he's the kind of guy who... Uh, as you say, you know, he, he like he doesn't care what what people did before they got in here. As we saw with John Coffey, John Coffey is meant to have brutally murdered two young girls. And he read the report about that. And so he knows what John Coffey's meant to have done. But he at no point does he ever, you know, before, obviously, you know, things change later on. He never treats John Coffey as somebody who has murdered people. He just treats him as another prisoner who needs to be kind of respected and, you know, if he does that then he'll behave. He even says to him when you know, when they take him out of restraints, he's like, you know, you're gonna behave yourself and he's just like, you know, yeah, like he's not he's not gonna do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. Robin? Well, I was thinking about how the movie treats uh the histories of these men on the mile. I I, I feel like they don't I mean, besides John Coffey and I think Wild Bill, we don't really hear anything about like what Arlen did or what Dell did. Um, and so it's almost taking that point of view of, of Paul that these are just guys and this is their last, these are their last moments and we're just going to treat it like an ICU, you know, <laughs> you're going to treat it like they're, they're on their, yeah. on their way out yeah. and that's it. Yeah. There's no need to punish there's, them more. They're going to die. Like, <laughs> yeah. It is almost very much like it doesn't matter what they did anymore. Cause now I think, it, you know, later on, uh, uh, Brutal does say, like, you know, his bill is clean with the house now. Like, once you're in here, you're going to die anyway. Yeah. So it's like, it just doesn't matter what you did anymore. <laughs> like, it's just the. You know, also, I don't, I don't think it's natural. It's not, there's like no natural way for them to kind of put in there, um, oh, we're going to, we're going to kill uh, Chief Arlene Betterbook who murdered a man for a pair of shoes. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no way for them to just put that in there. And the funny thing is when when um, Bill comes in, uh, well, Bill, should I say, um, when he comes in, they don't say what he's done. Like, they don't say why he's been caught. They just say that, you know, like he's guilty of something like they, they, they don't really go into detail. Obviously, it's only when we get the reveal at the end that we find out exactly what he actually yeah. did. But he, that, that's not the reason he's in there. Um, you know, it is only John Coffey that we get the kind of backstory for why he's in there. Um, and I think as well in the novel, they say with uh, with Dell that like the arson was accidental because he was trying to cover up. Was he trying to cover up a murder? Yeah, I think yeah, he, he burned he a place down. Yeah. murdered people, and then he was trying to cover it up, and then and the burn. I think he's trying to burn the bodies, and then he ends up burning down the house next to it and stuff. Wow. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, you know, we get this first execution. It goes like clockwork. Uh, Graham Green, not that Graham Green, is playing <laughs> uh, Arlene Butterbuck and. Um, he, I mean, he is like, he doesn't really do much in this, uh, later on, people might know him as Harry Clearwater from, uh, the Twilight Saga. He is, you know, and I mean, they actually cast someone who was a Native American in a role of a Native American. So, um, you have to applaud them for actually doing that in like 1999, Mm. um, and going to that kind of trouble. Obviously, you know, he was Oscar nominated for Dances with Wolves. Um, which I'm guessing where a lot of other people would know him from. Right. <laughs> um, you know, there are obviously, you know, with, with any actor, there are obviously two careers. There's one where you're, you know, an Oscar nominated serious person. And then there's one where you end up in, you know, uh, teenage novel adaptations. Yeah. And there's a whole different crowd that get to know you. But yeah, he's in like pretty much everything I've seen him in. He's always really good. And, you know, he what he does here is what he's kind of described in the novel, which is quiet dignity. Which mm. is, you know, he he doesn't kind of protest or say anything, and then, like you say, after his death, brutal, again, you know, I just love brutal so much, you know, when Percy's kind of trying to, you know, uh, you know, kind of yell at him and say that he's going to hell and stuff, he's like, no, 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 you know, like, cut that out, you know, like, that's it, they've served their time, they've been executed, that's it, it's over, there's no, you don't need yeah. you don't get to kind of gloat over their dead bodies. Should note as uh, well, like, can't help but feel. It's a very deliberate reference to with you know they, his name's Arlen uh, Bitterbuck, but uh, they always refer to him as the chief. And mm, yeah. even earlier in the, in the in the movie too, they have that music from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that when Paul's in the 
the nursing home at the beginning. Huh. So it's very much like, yeah. well, you know, that's set in a, a prison of sorts. This is also set in a prison of sorts. So it's just a little intertextual reference there. To, although it's a bit weird because the, obviously the end of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is like this triumphant bid for freedom where the chief actually gets out and escapes and stuff. And this one, Spoilers. you don't escape. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody escapes this one. No one gets out of here alive. Yeah. Obviously, Thomas Newman does a wonderful job with the score as well. Um, you know, uh, just like I mean, I mean, I I I particularly love his. Um, oh, did he do the theme to Six Feet Under? Am I remembering that correctly? Oh yeah, yeah, um, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I love that theme. Yeah, obviously, two of the actors in this film will end up in Six Feet Under. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously now the chief is also six feet under. Um, <laughs> we then move on. We are in uh, what I'm calling the the second act. This is kind of mostly the stuff that's in the, the second book um, where uh, Dell has tamed Mr. Jingles. Um, uh, and he's, you know, some kind of uh, some kind of <laughs> some, some kind of circus mouse is what he says, which I just love. I mean, uh, we, I feel like, you know, we should uh, obviously talk about Michael Jeter. Um, you know, who was, I mean, such a kind of transcendent actor, like everything he was, I mean, I first saw him in Fisher King and he's, he's just amazing in Fisher King. Like it's a heartbreaking performance. Um, and he apparently is in the money pit, but as I said in that episode, I could not see him anywhere in the money pit. So, so, you know, technically speaking, this is his second time working with Tom Hanks. Um, and his final film, um, will actually be The Polar Express, uh, which is an extremely tragic film to have as your final film. Um, But yeah, he just, like, again, I think it's because the character on the page was so clear. Uh, You know, this kind of, like, you know, uh, New Orleans Cajun, you know, character. Um, And, I I mean, I I can't remember if it's in the novel, but obviously there is the implication that he is gay, which is, you know, something that Michael Jeter was openly uh, gay in real life. And I think some of that has kind of, is kind of in his character, like the way he acts, um, you know. And he, I mean, he ended up being HIV positive, but he lived for many, many years after that, and it wasn't connected in any way to his death. Um, he ended up dying of uh, epileptic seizure uh, at the age of fifty, which is kind of tragic because, um, you know, as I said, like his his character in this film is kind of the heart of it. Um, you know, like the way that he kind of trains Mister Jingles and the kind of the way he interacts with that, and then obviously the fact that Percy. <laughs> Um, kind of hates him um, you know that kind of tension is also very present in the film and you know uh, the, the kind of the way that he trusts John Coffey as well is is kind of important um, it's just an amazing performance from Michael Jeter you know he, he really is a tragedy that we lost him because you he, know that, that, that was very much a because he physically matches the description in the book as much as well so again if you're coming to this after watching the movie and then trying to read this book like, you can't not picture him <laughs> as Dell like it's it's literally you know pitch perfect casting in, in, in that regard I know uh, Michael Jeter uh, mainly as Mr. Noodles from Elmo's World mm. uh, anybody who has kids That's might right, know yeah. Mr. Noodles <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that was again. It's like it's kind of the twin things, isn't it? Where you you're kind of a serious actor who's known for playing you know very serious roles, and then also you appear in like Mouse Hunt and mm-hmm. as Mr. Noodles, and you're also well known for that. But yeah, no, he, like it just shows the range that he had, yeah. um, you know, as an actor. And apparently, uh, uh, Tom Hanks you know, cried kind of... on his last day, according to yeah, which I un- which I understand because like you know his like. Obviously, we'll get to his death oh, yeah. later, but like, just like the way the way he is is just like, you know. Obviously, you know, in the novel, you know what he did, mm-hmm. and I guess that colors colors your judgment a little bit. But you know, obviously, the voice in the novel is is Paul's, and he's saying, you know, it it didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter what he did. Once he was on the mile, you know, the point was to treat them as well as they could until you know until their death. Um, and I do like that. Like he says, you know. Um, when he gets out of here, him him and Mr. Jingles are gonna make lots of money. You know, like this kind of you know he's not getting out of there, but I like I like that that's kind of the the positive attitude that he has of like um, you know, getting out of there. Um we also find out at this point that the warden has taken his wife, Melinda, to the hospital and they've told her that she has an inoperable brain tumor. It's basically in a part of the brain that they cannot get to. And so obviously, you know, again, we get a wonderful performance from um, James Cromwell, you know, that kind of 
the, the kind of sadness of him, like kind of not like basically not wanting to tell his wife what's going on with her and, you know, how it's basically going to end up kind of killing her. And, you know, like the fact that he doesn't want to do that again, it's kind of similar to Paul and the prisoners, you know, like he's not spending his time kind of concentrating on their death. Um, you know, and obviously when they rehearse the death, they, they, they have the prisoner go to a different part of the prison. So they're not they're not there for it. So it's, you know, not in their face or anything. Um, I really appreciate so, the relationship between him and Paul as well, though, because, you know, you're so used to oh, yeah. the trope being like, you know, the, 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 the big boss been a real hard ass who land and land and the underlings and whatnot. But him and Paul seem to be like genuine friends. And he actually like feels comfortable confiding everything in him and stuff and he treats him very much as his equal like i just find that quite nice and refreshing to see <laughs> the relationship particularly when you got like paul and percy elsewhere you're like oh, at least you know at least these guys are getting on as well at least you know him and brutal and everyone there there's a camaraderie between all these people it's a different warden than uh, shawshank yeah. <laughs> yes yeah yeah and i think um i think i mean obviously you know everyone kind of came to know him from babe uh, which is insane because he was 55 when he started. <laughs> so, like, it feels like that's kind of late for people to start to know him. But obviously he'd been acting for years, but like that was kind of one of the things that really kind of made him famous. Um, and then obviously, you know, from that he got Star Trek, which I think was the first time I saw him in a film uh, in Star Trek First Contact. And then obviously, you know, a great performance in LA Confidential, almost using his kind of genial persona against the audience because, mm. you know, Spoiler alert, he turns out to be the bad guy in that one. Um, which I think is why maybe coming into Green Mile, you might think he's also going to be the bad guy in this one because, you know, he, he, is, he is so kind of pleasant and everything. And obviously his life is, you know, his, his character's life is a bit tragic with this thing that's happening to his wife. Mm. Again, another, another um, you know, chamber of, of Chekhov's gun in this film being set up, um, you know. Uh, and this is when we get uh, the most glorious of all Tom Hanks pissing scenes where... <laughs> He is experiencing some pain and he tries to get to the outhouse, but he's unable to make it. So he drops to his knees and just pisses right there. And, you know, Frank Darabont knows what the audience are here for. And he frames it so that we get a shot of the stream and everything. It's, it's glorious. The it's, piss fans what they want. I mean, you know, when you when you come to see a Tom Hanks film, you know, there's three things you're looking for. You're looking for physical comedy. You're looking for a lot of yelling. Um, you know, even if he's a even if he's a toy, he yells a lot. Um, and you're looking for some pissing. And obviously, they can't do that in Toy Story or Toy Story Two. So, you know, here we are. But yeah, it's a great scene just because of like the, you know after he finishes, just kind of like the relief. Um, you know, and the way that kind of like t- the, the fact that also that is setting up literally the next scene is such a great. Like, uh, you know, it's a great storytelling from, um, you know, from uh, Frank Darabont because, you know, you, you think nothing of it. You think you're just being reminded that obviously he's he's got this urinary tract infection. But then we get to meet Sam Rockwell in hey. I probably I mean, I remember seeing him, I think, in Galaxy Quest after this. But this is where I was like, oh, who is this? Who is this guy who's playing this terrible <laughs> character? Yeah. Um, you had a great, a real like it's just that that year because it was just like that then Charlie's Angels as well where he was like spoiler revealed oh, to be yeah. the big big villain in that too and it's just like yeah remember the times like this now the era of Sam Rockwell has arrived yes. upon the new millennium yeah I mean just like every, I mean you know it feels like it shouldn't it shouldn't need to be said but like everything that he does is just it's just fantastic um, you know he and also of course he just loves dancing yep <laughs> um, you know um, he doesn't do any dancing in this uh, but obviously, his character is extremely derelict, and, uh, and also Harry. Let's—I mean, people are placing the brain on Percy, but Harry, come on, that guy is meant to be like a veteran. He should have checked, but he didn't check, and we get the impression that like Sam Rockwell is um, like been drugged up, and he's kind of standing there just drooling, and the guards just kind of you know take him to the you know take the transfer and just take him to the mile without even really kind of checking what was like if he had been um you know uh kind of like uh you know sedated in any way um i think this is the climax of like the second book where where he like this where he kind of appears and he starts like um you know he kind of gets from his restraints and he starts attacking everybody um and in this attack he kicks paul in the crotch oh my gosh tom hanks is like down like a sack of potatoes yeah. and he's in like you know basically his eyes are welling up he's about to like cry tears he's it's it's such a great kind of um being kicked in the crotch performance from Tom Hanks um 
And I like as well how, like, you know, um, World Bill, though he hates to be called that, is attacking all the, all these kind of guards, and then eventually he runs into Brutal, and he's just like, yeah, what are you going to do? And he just basically, like, punches him out. And he's, like, completely <laughs> knocked. And it's just such a, it's such a satisfying moment, because, like, Sam Rockwell comes into this as, like, you know, the most evil of all the characters, you know. It doesn't matter what he did before he got here. He's the one where it matters. Um, and he's just, a, you know, like, it's just a disaster, um, and this is this is obviously something that will kind of, you know, um, be very important in terms of like the the plot of the film. This is, I think, where we've basically established everything that's going to happen within the film, um, and we're just now waiting for everything to start paying off. Um, now, I I think it's funny because obviously at that point Paul is exhausted and just lies down in the middle of the Green Mile, and he kind of tells everybody else to like, you know, um, oh, the. Greatest moment of the whole the movie is in that, that slow <laughs> descent and this the uh, need to talk to your boss mm. not a good yeah. time John Coffey not a good time yeah. at all and I I just I just I just like how he's just completely defeated and obviously in extreme pain <laughs> and just laying there and then like yeah like you say we just get like you know a wonderful shot where where, where we just kind of see uh, John Coffey's hands and he's like um, you know. Uh, come down here and you know he wants to kind of talk to him and yeah Paul's like it's not a good time <laughs> and then he kind of gradually gets himself up and kind of walks down obviously like kind of sweating terribly um, this is like the kind of sweatiest Tom Hanks that I've seen since Turner and Hooch um, you know where <laughs> that was on the started, poster of the he's... film actually as I recall too the, the sweatiest Tom Hanks since Turner and Hooch <laughs> yeah well in Turner and Hooch he opens the film with him like running on a treadmill and just working up a sweat in just his underwear so mm. um, yeah uh, people forget that about Turner and Hooch and it's <laughs> that was on the poster was... of Turner and Hooch as well it's like, it opens yeah. with Tom Hanks in his underwear working up a sweat <laughs> You'll believe a man can be in his underwear. Um, <laughs> and so, of course, uh, you know, uh, John Coffey calls over Paul. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, when John Coffey was arrested, he said, I tried to take it back. And then when obviously he was in the, you know, when he was in his cell, he said to Paul, I tried to take it back. Um, and then at this point, he grabs, he grabs him, pulls him in and then grabs his crotch. And obviously, Dell is kind of going crazy in like because his cell is obviously opposite John Coffey, and we get him basically uh, curing the urinary tract infection by taking it from him, mm. and then spitting out a bunch of flies, um, mm. which uh, I, I guess was a choice. And you know, I uh, interpret that to be like because you know as you go through, there's going to be a lot of messianic uh, you know comparisons between JC. And uh, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, because, yeah, flies and gnats are supposed to be, like, you know, Lord of the Flies. You know, like, Satan, basically. So it's pure yeah. evil and pain and suffering he's, he's emitting out. So it comes out in the form of of flies. And it's weird enough, I think, then later on, Stephen King also uses that in uh, Doctor Sleep. When Danny Torrance can see people who are going to die pretty soon. They're just covered in flies right. and stuff, so... Yeah, te- I think technically speaking, some people feel that John Coffey has some kind of powers that are also in The Shining and Doctor Sleep and other Stephen King books. But I think obviously because they want this to just be a standalone and obviously the novel was kind of written as standalone. I don't think Stephen King ever really explicitly links it into mm. uh, into that kind of power. But obviously later on he will transfer a vision to, <laughs> to Paul. So that is a little bit of the kind of the shiny yeah, thing but yeah. I don't think Stephen King just, just makes it up as he goes basically like you know 20 years after the fact he's like yeah you know what yeah it was the same power why not yeah obviously this leads I, I just, oh go I'm for sorry, it no, uh, I just wanted to note here that it is, I, I'm trying to think of like you know I went to the theater and I watched this movie knowing the story knowing this is like a Stephen King movie you know I'm wondering what the person that is a Tom Hanks fan and went to see the latest Tom Hanks prestige drama. Uh, he's he's a prison guard. There's you know he's, he's dealing with death. He's dealing with mortality. Yada yada. And uh, and this is now an hour into this movie, and suddenly this happens. I, I wonder if uh, what what people <laughs> thought. Uh, now, what did your dad think? I mean, <laughs> I I mean. I, I'm I'm going to guess that people kind of w- were fine with it because it says Stephen King, and so they were like, "Oh, this is just the Stephen King part." Like the other part is Tom Hanks. This is Stephen King. Yeah, um, I don't think I remember my dad's reaction. I remember my mum being like, oh, 
I think she was a bit sort of like, oh, it's going to be a silly thing now because it's got supernatural <laughs> stuff in it. Where she was probably there for like, oh, I want a prison drama, damn it. I want a prison drama with Tom Hanks pissing. It was going fine for that first hour. Now you're throwing in this. <laughs> Thank you.